Well, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're back in this great um, book, this great chapter, Titus chapter 2. We've been here for a number of weeks. And this is the second part of the message that I began uh, a few Sundays ago. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, as the Lord would have it. We weren't able to uh, return right away to part two, but this is it. And um, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. Great message uh, as we hear the rest of this, um, what the Lord would have to say to us. And it's always important, and this is the reason why I read Titus chapter 2 earlier um, in its fullness, to step back and think about the big picture of where we've been and what Paul is doing uh, as he exhorts Titus here in, in, in Titus chapter 2. If you remember, he dealt with elders in chapter 1. And the reason why he dealt with elders who are to be men of character and men who are gifted and men who are able to handle the word is so that they could protect the church from false doctrine. And in the latter half of chapter 1 of Titus, he dealt with the infiltration of false teachers who are teaching false doctrine and they are um, um, destroying households and they are infiltrating the church and causing harm to the church. And so how much more should the church have elders who are able to refute these individuals and protect the church? The doctrine of the false teachers doesn't lead to holiness and to Christ-likeness, whether in individual households or in the church as a whole. And so Titus then in chapter 2 verse 1 is instructed by Paul, in contrast to these false teachers, he says, As for you, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, teach the people to be different and teach them concerning the conduct that flows from and is consistent with sound doctrine, which basically just means healthy teaching, healthy teaching, which leads to sound living. I want you to note some things about this conduct. But before that, I should say, you know, it should be true for all of us that over time, as you are exposed to sound teaching, to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, as you're exposed to Holy Scripture, that in res- you should be responding in obedience to the truth. And the result should be that as you apply the Word of God to your life and the Spirit of God helps you to do that, you're guided into the truth and you apply it to your life, you should become more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, which it means set apart from sin unto God. That should be produced in your life. Now, what I want you to notice about this conduct that Titus is to teach the church in chapter 2, I want you to notice some things about this conduct. One, it's for the glory of God. Anything that these individuals, the various groups in chapter 2, obey, it's for not for personal gain or for uh, vain glory or to bring attention to themselves, but it's for the glory of God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5. Young women are to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Young men are to be, um, uh, Titus is to model before young men being sound in speech, verse 8, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then bond slaves in verse 10, which we're going to make the application to the workplace, employer-employee relationship, are not to be pilfering, verse 10, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Anything that we do as far as our obedience as Christians is done for the glory of God. All of it. 
Not only that, but I want you to notice that this holy conduct that all the various groups are exhorted to is enabled and fueled by God's grace already working in their lives. Notice in chapter 2, verse 11, on the heels of all of the instructions to the various groups, he says, Why are you to conduct yourself this way, set apart from sin unto God? For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has saved them. The grace of God is sanctifying them. The grace of God, in, in verses 13 and 14, is causing them to look forward to the hope of Jesus Christ when he returns. The grace of God is already working in the lives of these people. You see, the exhortations to be obeyed in chapter 2 are not moralism so that you can be find favor with God. If you are up, us, outside of Christ and you have not repented of your sins, turned from your sins and trusted Christ, confessed Him as Lord and Savior, then all this is, if you're obeying those things, is moralism that doesn't please the Lord. Because you're detached from the vine who is Christ. It is not uh, outward behavior modification that He's calling to in Titus chapter 2. It is heart transformation leading to uh, uh, um, uh, behavior on the outside that is obedient, that glorifies the Lord because the grace of God is at work in your life already as a believer, right? So first of all, if you're listening to these exhortations, I don't want you to be deceived into thinking, well, um, so me as an unbeliever, surely I can just do the same things myself, right? By my own willpower and I can gain favor with God. Absolutely not. Only salvation comes only by the merits of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his atoning death on the cross for your sins. The one who absorbed the wrath of God on the basis of His atoning work and His resurrection, can you be saved when you turn from your sins and you make a commitment to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? So this conduct is enabled and fueled by the grace of God. It empowers us to live the Christian life as the Spirit of God comes in and dwells us permanently, never to leave us again on this earth opening up our minds and our hearts to the Holy Scriptures so that we might appropriate them to our lives. And then the Spirit of God brings about the, the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Also notice that this conduct, as we have been learning, and I want you to hear me, is fostered and flourishes with other Christians in the context of the church. In the context of the church. Growth in Christ does not happen in isolation, but in community. Growth in Christ does not happen by living independent, autonomous lives, but an ongoing life-on-life relationship with other Christians of like precious faith who want to follow Jesus just as much as you want to follow Jesus. Hear me. I have never met a Christian, a solid, mature believer who is in the biblical sense vibrant and flourishing in Christ Jesus who, and in loving his fellow brethren or her fellow brethren who is not connected and identified with a local church. It's an impossibility. Impossibility. At least in the biblical sense of flourishing in your Christianity. Christ is the head of his church. The church is the, is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, who is the head of the church. And we are members of one another. We need one another, right? We need one another. And this is what we've been learning in, in Titus then, especially Titus chapter 2. That we, who, if we are a mature congregation, a mature church, is committed to disciple making. And there is something for all of us here. Every single one of us 
fits into one of these categories in chapter 2. Older men, older women, young women, young men, even uh, deals with the workplace later on. We all fall into one or more of these categories. So there's something for all of us here. We all make up the people of God. Those of us who have turned from our sins, trusted Christ, we're the people of God, the family of God. We are the, the church. And we all have a role to play in putting the gospel on display before a lost world. And we do this together. Not only do we glorify God together, but listen, we live holy lives and glorify God so that we might be an example to one another. An example to one another. Elders in chapter 1 are to be an example to the flock. Older women are to be an example to the younger women in chapter 2 verses 3 through 5. And then we've been talking about the fact that older men are to be an example to the younger men. And in this text, it specifically singles out even Titus as the main pastor of these people to be an example to the younger men in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So we as the church, as the family of of Christ, the household of God, and our Heavenly Father, um, we we, are calling Him and addressing Him as our Heavenly Father. We recognize that what our Heavenly Father wants is that His children care for and are invested into one another. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not the building, the people are the church. The people of the redeemed who trusted in Christ. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it or will not overpower it. How is Jesus building his church? He is building his church as his people, the followers of Jesus Christ, the learners of Christ, are so captivated by Jesus Christ that they want to go tell the world about Jesus and there's evangelism taking place. We are calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ as their only hope. And then there's edification, where believers use their gifts and their abilities to edify or build up one another individually and collectively as a church. So there's evangelism, there's edification, all of it leading to exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is the Great Commission. That's making disciples. And every single one of us has a role to play in that, beloved. Every single one of us. And I've been telling you that if we are about the Great Commission... If we are a Great Commission church, which every church on earth should be, because that is Acts chapter 1, Matthew 28, Jesus' final words to his disciples was, go make disciples, right? Go make disciples. Evangelize, edify them, teach them, every, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded, right? And as we do that, the church is built. All of us should be about the Great Commission. If we are about the Great Commission, then we should be a next generation church that should be our mentality and not just once in a while or hear this event or that event emphasizing investment into one another especially into the younger but this should be a culture a mentality that's that saturates our very environment in everything that we do whether sundays or throughout the week as a church we ought to be a next generation church if indeed we are a a great commission church this begins in the very context of our home and should flow out onto the church and onto the world for us, right? It's a both and, not an either or. This making disciples thing. So this next generation disciple making culture is what we've been talking about so much on Sunday mornings. And I hope the Lord has been convicting you as he's been convicting me of the fact that oftentimes we are into this catty Christianity type of, this catty Christianity brand of of 
of, of um, Christianity in our country, right? This have it your way, McDonald's kind of way of looking at ministry. Where we simply pick and choose what instructions and exhortations we're going to obey from the word of God. And we are not willing to obey the hard things, right? Only those things that are convenient for us. And don't take us out of our comfort zone. Are we willing to obey? But this is where it's, we're down to the nitty gritty here of what it means to be practicing biblical Christianity and living it out in community together as followers of Jesus Christ, helping one another become more and more like Jesus. Now, three weeks ago, we began looking at Titus 2, verses 6 through 8. And there, Paul specifically instructs Titus, Likewise, in the same way you've instructed the older men and the older women so that they might impact the younger women, likewise, there is a responsibility that you need to call young men to as well. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. It's a command. It's to be continuously an exhortation, a life of exhortation that is to come. And the object of that exhortation are to be young men, beginning with Titus. Titus is to lead the charge in this exhortation of young men, specifically in this text. And we said that young men need to be not ignored, but engaged. That we as a church, rather than accepting the low expectations that society has about young people, especially young men, single or married, might I add, that it is okay to live selfish, self-indulgent, reckless lives. Young men are to be engaged and exhorted, relentlessly instructed. Relentlessly instructed. To do what? To, keep, to be sensible. That is to keep their passions and impulses in check. To be self-controlled. To gain self-mastery over themselves. And it is possible by the grace of God to be sensible young men if you're in here this morning, single or married. Some say that young men in the Bible may, are anyone under the age of 60. I tend to think that it's, it's anyone under the age of 40. But all of us are called to be sensible, right? So at the end of the day, don't focus so much on what particular age uh, character um, makes me part of the young man category. All of us are called to this, but especially you as a young man, you could be single or married and be a young man, right? We often think young men, yeah, teens. No, teens is not a biblical category, right? You're either a, ch- a baby, a toddler, child, or when you turn 13, you are a young man. You are a young woman, and God holds you responsible for the way that you live your life. So, young men must be exhorted to be sensible. And we said that they, could be, they needed to practice sensibility in their speech, in their work ethic, in the use of their time, in their relationships, even in the church, in their relationship with the world, and especially with the opposite sex. They are to treat uh, um, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, let no one, Timothy, look down on your youthfulness. And Timothy was in his late 30s. Think about that. A pastor of a very prominent church of Ephesus in his late 30s is considered a young man. He says, Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, which tells you, right, that there is a stigma, even for a pastor, that comes with youth, with being young, right? But... What that passage also tells me is, is that it is possible to remove the stigma of low expectations from people in society towards young men by your example. Because it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather 
in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. You can remove the stigma that comes by being with being young. By your example, the way that you live and the choices that you make. So that was the first way that young men are to be mentored or trained in the church, beginning with Titus and then the elders and us older men. It is by relentless instruction. We need to engage them, engage them, not ignore them, not look down and say, oh, they'll never get it together. Listen, it is our responsibility to instruct relentlessly the young men in our home and then in the church. Amen. It is our responsibility. Now, the second way that young men are to be trained or mentored is by providing them with a compelling example, a compelling example. That is a persuasive or influential example. How do you train or mentor young men to be sensible, to have self-control, to gain mastery? It is not just by relentless instruction, by in grace, by the way, and with mercy, we ought to be doing that. Remembering that we too were foolish ourselves, right? At one point. So we need to practice grace even in our instruction. But in additionally, we have to be training and mentoring young men by a compelling example. And like I said, this begins with Titus specifically directly in this text. But it's a church-wide mission, isn't it? Especially with the older men of the church who are take the bull by the horns and be investing themselves into the younger men. If, because if you look at this, elders are instructed to be sensible too in chapter 1 verse 8. Right? Why? So that they could be positioned to be an example to the younger. And then older men are are to be sensible in chapter 2 and verse 2. Why? So that they might glorify God and set the example and the tone for the younger. So this is a church-wide endeavor, not just Titus, right? But it begins with him, and we're going to see that here. Everyone needs compelling examples. Everyone does. That's how God has designed it. That's how even our society functions, right? There's training and modeling that happens, right? In many different professions. It has been said, example is the most powerful rhetoric or tool of persuasion, right? It's one thing to say things to someone. It's quite another thing to model it for them and to show them how to do it, right? The Lord Jesus was our, the master example. The master example. At the, in the night of his betrayal, do you remember what he did in John chapter 13? They were all together, preparing them for his death to come. And it says there that he um, uh, put on the apron of a slave. And he stooped down. And he did the most menial of tasks for his disciples. Reserved for the lowest of the lowest servants. And he washed the feet of the disciples. And Peter even said, no, Lord, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me, right? And then he says to them, if I, being your Lord and your master, have done this, you should follow in my steps and do the same thing for one another, right? My paraphrase. You ought to be doing this yourselves. I'm showing you how you need to be an example of humble servanthood. Jesus set the example for his disciples, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says this, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Paul was an older man by that time already. I wonder how many of us older men can say 1 Corinthians four sixteen right now. Younger men, be imitators of me. Listen, if you can't say that, then it's not a reason for you to be paralyzed and do nothing about it. 
It means that you need to confess your sin to the Lord, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and commit yourself to now be the type of older man who's living a holy, godly conduct before the Lord from your heart so that you can be positioned to spend time with younger men and set the example for them, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. It's not even that we tell younger men, Hey, follow me, because I'm all that in a bag of chips, right? No, it's follow me in so long or to the extent that I am following Jesus' example. I want to be like Christ, and I may be further along than you are. Follow me. Follow my lead as we head up all the way to the top for, for Jesus, right? To be like Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, speaking of the mistakes and the sins of the Israelites in the Old Testament, Paul says, Now these things, these sins of the Israelites, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. See, even our failures as older men, or for any of us, can become teaching opportunities for others, right? If we learn from them, And we're willing to use them as examples of, hey, younger person, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Let me tell you what happened to me, right? And it's good to go back to the word and show them, this is what God says. This is what I did. Don't ever do that, right? Examples, examples, the importance of examples. All Christians need them. All Christians need them. Like I said, it's one thing to say things, to instruct younger men in particular. It's quite another thing to show them. Actions speak louder than words, a common saying says, right? This is not to say that, the, that, that people won't still make choices for the good or the bad, even with some of you who have had great examples and you made bad choices in your life. It doesn't guarantee just because you have great examples that you're going to go and you're going to obey the Lord, right? Or for some of you who had bad examples growing up, and now you're walking with the Lord and you're a, an example to others. Think about that. The Lord redeemed you from even the bad examples in your past, Right? But example is still important, isn't it? doesn't guarantee anything, but example is powerful. It is powerful. It can set the trajectory for a young man's life, for a young man's life and a young woman's life. And think about the importance of this, the, this issue of example on the island of Crete. Here are these, this is this wicked society. Uh, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's not very encouraging, right? To describe the society of Crete. Verse 13, this testimony is true. This is a wicked society. Deception, right? Laziness. People are just about themselves. For this reason, verse 13, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Paul's saying to Titus, listen, this is a wicked society. Titus, what they need is modeling and examples so that they know what it means to live gospel-transformed lives. How important that is. And so Paul says, showing yourself to be an example, Titus, in verse 7. Notice, an example. That's the word in Greek, tupas. It's a beautiful word, beautiful picture. It's a mark or, a, or an impression left by a blow. That's what it refers to. A mark or an impression left by a, a blow. It was used of, of the mark or impression left by a, a boxer's punch. It was used of, a, of the impression or mark left by a blow of a hammer. That's the idea here. It came to mean a standard, 
a model, a pattern, an example. You've heard the expression, haven't you? Uh, That person left an indelible mark upon my life. That person left a lasting impression upon me. What, What do they mean? I'm not the same. In light of the fact that I came across them, they greatly impacted me. Being around them greatly shaped me so that I'm not the same person that I used to be, right? Power of example. Power of example. Recently, when my wife was sick at home, she stayed home with with the the two girls who were also a bit sick. And later on on Sunday afternoon, she sent me a picture of what my little Chloe, who's five years old, was doing at home. And uh, Chloe didn't get to come to church, but... She, this picture had Chloe. She basically laid in two rows, very well organized, all of her stuffed animals. And then in front of her stuffed animals on her master uh, king bed, she put, she put books in front of all of the, the stuffed animals. And then she proceeded to go get the uh, dirty laundry hamper, turn it upside down, and she, she put it in front of, of all of the, the stuffed animals, and she put her Bible on top of it. And she started preaching to the stuffed animals, right? <laughs> I wonder where she got that, right? Well, you know what? Obviously, she got it from her dad. But also, you know what else? Her Sunday school teachers do the same thing, right? Other people who sit in front of her and teach the word of God to her in the home and in the church. Why does she do that? Why does she do that? Because that's left an impression upon her, right? A mark upon her little life. So whether you're younger or older, there's, there's power in example. And listen, I believe, beloved, that even in the sinful heart of every young man, that there exists this cry, show me, show me, show me a pattern. I want to be like that guy, right? For the good or for the bad in the bad cases, right? For the good or the bad. Young men long for examples. And unfortunately, most of them go after bad examples, right? Right? One of my favorite books on parenting sons, and it's a tearjerker if you want to get it. Man, I'm giving you a heads up. It's this book called What Every Man Wishes His Father Had Told Him. Tearjerker, but a great book. And on the front cover of this book is this picture of of the, the legs of a little boy, probably three or four years old, who knows, wearing his father's shoes, five times the size of his little feet, right? Why? What's the significance of that picture? Little boys want example, right? They, especially when they're younger, they want to walk in their father's steps. And the goal is to get them to continue to do that to the, in a positive way to the end of their life, right? Little boys want heroes. Little boys want heroes. That's why these hero movies are so popular and they keep coming up. And now we have 15 different spider movies over the last 20 years, right? When are they going to stop making Spider-Man movies for crying out loud, Right? People want heroes. People want tupas, examples, patterns, models, right? People long for that, and especially young men do. Listen, everyone is an example. Every single one of you sitting in here. The question is, are you a positive example or a negative example? You're an example in your marriage. You're an example in your parenting. You're an example in your home life for the good or the bad. You're an example in the church. You're an example in society. You're an example in your workplace and whether you work unto the Lord or not and you have a a good reputation there for Christ. You're an example everywhere. The issue is, are you a positive example or a negative example? 
And let me say to you who are older men sitting in here, you are an example in this church for the good or the bad. There are watching eyes of the younger upon you, including mine. I love watching older men in action, reaching out, having conversation, and I want to learn and glean from younger men in my life. Formally or informally, you are being watched. Whether you realize it or not, you understand. Now, this may scare some of you. This may be intimidating for others of you. This may paralyze some of you. But listen to me. God wants you to embrace and seize upon the privilege to be an example because this is your responsibility to build into the young men of the church, beginning with those in your home and onto the life of the church. It is your responsibility, my responsibility as older men to build into the younger. It is ours. And if you are not walking with the Lord as you should, then this is the moment right now to repent of your sin and to confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to be obedient to you so that I could be positioned to be an example as an older man to many a young man informally or formally. That is what the challenge is for you right now at this moment, because you're called to be an example for the younger. That is your greatest responsibility. As I said to the older women, your mission in the church, your primary mission in the church is to build into the younger women. And that flows out of your home first and foremost, right? But you should be doing that in the context of the church. Now note, in verse 7, he gives some flesh or some substance to this issue of example. Titus is to be an example, specifically to young men, of first of all, selfless service. Selfless service. How do you train young men to be sensible? It says in verse 7, Show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds. Good deeds. What are these good deeds? They refer to visible, kind, selfless actions toward others. Right? People are the object of good deeds in Titus. People are the object of the one another's, if you will. So good deeds refers to you doing good for others, that which is intrinsically beneficial for others, the meeting of needs of others. Titus is not just to teach good deeds, but he is to model them. And so are we, beloved, especially those of us who are older, are to be models and examples of good deeds, of meeting the needs of of people in the church, so that we might glorify God, so that we might be an example to the younger amongst us about the fact that life is not just about living for yourself, right? It's about thinking about Lord first and others. And this requires great humility and, and sacrifice. I think the reason why Titus is to be an example of good deeds, of selfless sacrifice here, is because young men typically aren't about doing those kinds of things, right? One of the ways that you know a boy is becoming a man is that he begins to think about others beside himself for once, right? And selflessly serving other people, doing good for others. Meeting needs, thinking about others beside himself or herself. Young men are usually self-indulgent, selfish, and only concerned with their own needs and wants. That's why Paul says, Titus, you be an example of good deeds of selfless service. Why? So that young men will follow your lead. And rather than following their impulses to live for themselves, reckless lives, they direct and channel their beautiful God-given gift and their youth of energy and gifts and abilities and all of that for the service of God as he or she meets needs. That's what God desires of young people. 
That's what God desires of young men. Now listen, you may be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not a young person. But this applies to all of us, doesn't it? All of us. And listen to me, you can't expect young people, whether in your home or in the church, to live selflessly, um, doing good deeds for others, if you are not providing them with a compelling example. A compelling example. And here in Titus, what we, we find that all those, all those who, find, who call themselves Christians are to serve God and be devoted to good deeds. Let's just do a survey of that. This emphasis of good deeds. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. Elders are to be hospitable, loving what is good. Elders are to be good doers, focused on what is beneficial for others, right? In contrast, look at chapter 1, verse 16. The false teachers profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They're the opposite. They're not doing anything for the Lord. They're doing it for sordid gain. They're not doing it for the benefit of others. And then there's this focus of all believers being devoted to good deeds, to selfless service. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. The grace of God teaches us to be, in the middle of verse 14, to be zealous for good deeds. Rather, the end of verse 14. We are to be zealous for good deeds in light of the grace of God working in our hearts and lives. Because God has been so good to us, hasn't He? If our Lord could go and give everything, His very life for us, who are we to not give a little bit of our time for others? So we have to be zealous for good deeds in the light of our salvation. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Believers are to be ready for every good deed. Notice that in 3.1, ready for every good deed. Are you anticipating constantly chomping at the bits, looking out for Ruth's CBC Recycler email where there's needs expressed in that email or another context of, of our church? Like, oh, wow, are there any needs? Is there anything that I can do to serve someone? When Len Bentley sends out, uh, our deacon over Mercy Ministries, he sends out um, solicitations for men to help move are you chomping at the bits, older men, to jump in there and help out? Some of you have limitations physically, so that's understood, okay? But whatever needs come forward, even whether it's email or are communicated in the context of the church, are you, chapter 3, verse 1, ready for every good deed? Anticipating needs and being on the lookout for needs? Most of us, what do we do? Oops, I didn't see that. Well, I hope enough people, enough people volunteered for that, you know? Well, I'm sure they're moving with a church of 500. There will be enough people to help them move, right? I don't have to be there, right? As long as my, the willingness was there, right? See, many of us are not ready and eager for good deeds. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Christians should be careful to engage in good deeds. Diligently, actively pursuing, doing good for others. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. Christians must also learn to engage in good deeds. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, verse 14, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Listen, Titus is to be an example of good deeds. Leaders are to lead the charge, but all Christians are to be devoted to good deeds for the glory of God that we might set the example. We are not saved on the basis of good, our good deeds. We are saved on the basis of Jesus' merits, His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection. But we are saved unto good works that we might do good for the glory of God, not for ourselves that which is beneficial for others, it is a characteristic of love, isn't it? 
Love sacrifices. Love serves others. Now, why is it so important for young men to be taught devotion to good deeds? Well, because if they don't know how to think beyond themselves, listen to me, they will never be positioned to take care of others, right? Whether they are single young men, they will never learn to fulfill their God-given responsibilities as single men. If they're married, they will never be able to be positioned to take care of a wife. How in the world, as you as a young man, are you going to take care of a wife if you can't even take care of yourself? If you cannot even wake up in the morning, get yourself out of bed. But mommy and daddy have to come and lift you, uh, get you up, right? If you can't even hold a job, how are you going to be able to provide for yourself and provide for a wife if you're not able to do that? How are you going to be able to to have children and take care of children now, a whole family, if you can't even take care of yourself and and practice selfless service? How are you going to be able to hold a job, be productive in the world, in the church? If you're so selfish, right? Just concerned for yourself. You can't even take care of yourself. This is why older men... Young men need examples, and we need to instruct them relentlessly and set an example before them, right, of sensibility in all of these areas, that they would learn to take care of themselves so that they could take care of a family one day or of their God-given responsibilities out in society as those who display the transforming power of the gospel before a lost world. Young men need to be taught to love others, to be selfless for others, to be about good deeds. Back in college... I remember just uh, really struggling with um, just more of an introvert personality and um, always internalizing things. And, you know, I was walking with the Lord. I was a believer seeking to be faithful. I was being discipled and everything. But I remember that it was difficult for me to be in, 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 in Bible studies or large crowds because it was very easy for me to just kind of stay with my one or two people that I was comfortable with. And so one of my weaknesses was I didn't really reach out to anybody new guys that came in or, or girls that came in in the college ministry, I wasn't reaching out. And one of the under-shepherds of the group met with me. He said, hey, I need to meet with you. So I knew I was in trouble already, right? We met, and one of the, and the thing that he brought before me was his campus. I'm really, I'm so encouraged about so many areas of your life, but one of the areas that I'm struggling with right now is that you are not loving people like you should. He says, you know what? And I think you struggle big time with being a man-fearer, he said. And let me show you what, and let me tell you why I'm, I'm observing this. Whenever we are in a, in a group setting, you never reach out to anybody. You're just about yourself and one or two people that you're comfortable with. You don't reach out to anybody who's visiting our group, he said. You need to go out of your comfort zone and love people enough and reach out. Let them know that you care. Well, I didn't take it that serious. So we were at the Bible study on a Friday night. And there I am again, kind of isolated a bit, right? I was about a year in the Lord. And he comes up to me and says, hey. And he actually said this. He said, hey, punk, come here, right? I don't advise that you'd start that way as an older man, right? <clears throat> but that's what he said to me. He said, hey, obviously you didn't get what I was telling you, right? Right, Kempis? I said it because I cared about you. Okay, see those two guys over there? You're going to follow me. And we're going to go over there nonchalantly. And I'm going to show you how to reach out to those guys. So we walked over there together, and it was the greatest time. It was amazing to watch this guy. He was about seven or eight years older than me. He was going to UCLA at the time. Just a great guy. Just a great heart of outreach. He wasn't a flashy guy. He just loved and cared for people. And he was trying to tell me, hey, 
You need to love other people and be selfless in your service to other people. And one of the manifestations for me was in reaching out and having a heart for other people. You see, the power of example, the power of example. Young men need to be taught this. Listen, America is suffering from an epidemic of this, right? An epidemic of this. Men who have never grown up. Men who are selfish, self-serving, self-consumed. Men who are incompetent to care for other people, let alone a wife or kids or anyone else in the society. They are essentially men with hair on their chest, but they are, they are children in a man's body. Children in a man's body. They've never grown up. Listen to me. Some of you young men in here who are married, you fall under this category of you, you being immature. You being immature. Your wife is the leader of your home. Your wife is the one known across the church for being a person of good deeds, devoted to good deeds. Your wife spiritually leads your kids. Your wife is about selfless service for others. Listen to me. Knock it off and step up. Repent of that. Confess it to the Lord and be the leader of selfless service that God has called you to be. Amen? I'm talking to you right now who are young men. Single or married. Why is it that for some of you, we hear more about your wives serving and being self-sacrificial in the context of the local church than you. You don't evangelize. You don't build into anybody. You have a hard question to ask yourself right now. And it is this. Am I even a believer? If this is the pattern of my life and I don't even see the weightiness of my role to be the type of husband that I need to be and the, the dad that I need to be and the servant in the church sacrificing for others, doing good deeds for others, then there's a problem with your lack of affections. And I'm calling you right now to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord or repent of your unfaithfulness, confess it to the Lord and there's forgiveness at the cross and renewal that you would be the leader in your home and in the church and in society that God has called you to be. Listen to me. Hear me, young men. There's a famine in the land here. There is. Even of marriages where you are not stepping up and you are seeking the forgiveness and reconciliation of your wife in fulfillment of God's word to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Repent. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus if you are not a Christian so that he would empower you to love your wife as Christ loves his church. Hear me. And I say this because I care about you and I love you and I want you to glorify God with your life. America is suffering from this type of a thing, right? A lack of selfless service. Young men that need examples. Older men, we need to be the example in setting the tone to teach young men to do that. They need to be shown in many cases. What does that look like, right? What does that look like? I never had an example in my past. Good parents, but they were not an example of godly living. Show me. Show me. Oh, that you as an older man would be willing, for crying out loud, to be that instrument of change in a young man's life. Some of you older men have just dropped the ball, abdicated your responsibility in the church to be that instrument of change in a young man's life. How could it be that, that Jesus who gave everything for you, everything, that you would be saved from hell itself and you don't have even a moment to invest into younger men? And you hide behind your busyness and you hide behind your job 
And you hide behind your retirement. And you hide behind the American culture of passivity and complacency. You are not involved in the young men of this church. In all over America this is happening. And we are losing our young people. Hear me. We are not the only church suffering with this. I talk to brothers outside of this church who have the same issues. The younger generation, we are not passing on the baton to the younger. For the sake of the gospel, to the glory of Jesus, we're dropping the ball. Big time. Young people need examples. Are we willing to do that by the grace of God? Are we willing to be agents of change? Notice that they also, in verse 7, need examples of integrity. Not only selfless service, but integrity. He says, show yourself an example, verse 7, with purity and doctrine, he says. In your teaching and your doctrine, be pure. That's the idea of without corruption, unadulterated, with integrity is the idea. It's specific to Titus' teaching here. But it's broader than that because if he doesn't model integrity in the guarding of, of the purity of the truth, guarding of the truth and handle it with integrity, how will the young men follow suit? He was to be the opposite of false teachers who, chapter 1, verse 14, 14 turn away from the truth. They distort and pervert the truth. Listen, Titus was not to be a politician. Bribing. In his teaching ministry, lobbying for personal gain or self-interest groups in the church who have an agenda, that was not to be Titus. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says to the Corinthians regarding himself and the apostles and other faithful preachers, we are not like many peddling the word of God. And the idea there is, is watering down the truth. It was used of, of innkeepers who would water down the, the pure wine that was to be served to the servants. They gave them watered down versions of the wine, if you will. We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I remember, and every single week, there's this voice, multiple voices, but one voice above all the others, a mentor of mine who would say, Kempis, serve the meal every single week that God has already given to the people of God, uncorrupted, unadulterated. Don't mess it up. He doesn't need your help. Exhorting. And I'm reminded by the, the sticker in my, on my desk under this glass surface from one of our past pastors, preachers, faithful men of God, guard the truth. Guard it. Protect the truth. May I say to us, older men, we need to be those who guard the truth and model for the younger men what it means to, to hold on fast to the unadulterated truth of the Word of God so that our young people, there's a message clear and loud. We will stand for the truth. You need to be about the truth, guarding the truth too. Pray for me. Pray for me. As an application of this text, I want to, contribute to be, continue to be this type of man who protects and guards the truth. Listen, I understand that not everything I, I say will tickle the ears of people. No. Especially these days. There have been, in my last close to three years now, being your pastor teacher, there have been people who have literally walked out of the service when I have called out sexual immorality, when I have talked about the issue of transgender as we know it, and that that is a sin against God that people needed to repent of, and that they need to put their faith in Jesus and find forgiveness for that sin. 
They walked out. People who were called out on fornication, sex outside of marriage, because they're not married and they're living together or they're having sex as married people who have gotten upset about that. You know what? As long as we're being faithful to the word of God, let the chips fall where they fall. Walk out. You don't have to deal with me. You have to deal with God. That's who you have to deal with. There have been people who have been, women who have had a difficult time with, with the whole issue of, of a wife's submission to her husband. Because it, it's demeaning and condescending to women. Listen, this is God's design for women. If you want to be happy and glorify God, you need to learn from your heart to live well under submission under your husband. Let the chips fall where they fall if you don't like that. You have to answer to God. There have been people that when I told them that we need to be praying for our government in fulfillment of 1 Timothy chapter 2, to be praying for our governing authorities, the legislative branch, even presidents like Obama or uh, um, uh, Trump, that they have gotten upset about that. You know why? Because, hey, he's a racist. Why should we pray for him? Listen, the word of God says you need to pray for him and the legislative branch. You need to obey the word of God. Regardless. That God would bring salvation and biblical perspective upon that man and those individuals who are leading our country. People have gotten all worked up about that. Why should we pray for that racist guy? Listen to me. God says so. That's why. Pray for him. Pray for him. And for all of Congress in our legislative branch. Pray. And even people have gotten worked up. When we talk about disciple making, this whole issue of investing into one another's lives, you know why? Because we have this catty Christianity type of perspective here in this country, and we bring it into the church, right? I call it the the McDonald's view of ministry. Have it your way. You pick and choose whatever you want in the church with no commitment whatsoever. You show up whenever you want to show up. You do whatever you want to do for for your fulfillment and for your purposes. And you don't care about anybody else. Listen to me. The Word of God says that we need to be about the Great Commission. That means evangelism, edification, leading to exaltation. That is our mission here on this earth until Jesus returns and we do it in glory with Him. Right? Exalt Him. Young men need examples of selfless service, integrity with regards to the truth. And then as we handle the truth with purity or integrity, this will produce, notice in verse 7, reverence. Reverence. Titus was to be an example, showing yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Dignified, he says. Conduct yourself in the teaching of the word of God with dignity. It's the same word dignified used of older men in chapter 2, verse 2, that they need to be dignified. It has to do with honor and respect for the truth. It's not that you you can't laugh or have a sense of humor, which is a gift of God, but that we are to treat the Word of God with the seriousness that it deserves, to give it its due reverence. It refers to sacred sobriety with regards to the truth of the Word of God, because the context here is that Titus, this is to be him being dignified in his teaching, in doctrine. Nothing is sacred anymore, right? Nothing. Nothing. Not even our Bibles are sacred. Young people treat their Bibles so flippantly, right? And even some of us as adults, we don't value the Bible, which is the Word of God, right? It's just a book. It's not really the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And listen to me, people died in church history so that you, from a human perspective, would have this Bible in your hands. Treasure it. Cherish it. I mean, it's like tied to my hip, you know? I, as soon as I don't have my, I'm away from my, I'm like, where, where's, where's, my, where's my Bible, right? 
I can't handle it. I drove back recently 35 minutes back to get my Bible from a place that I was going to. I can't be without it. I need it. It's mine, you know, not yours, mine. (laughs) Remember the eight-year-old little kid in Peru a few years ago after the massive Pisco earthquakes? Standing there in a worship service for all the people that had been affected and seeing this little seven or eight-year-old little boy with a little tiny green Gideon Bible with notes all over it, he cherished his little Bible. Loved his little Bible. Some of us have like 10, 15, 20 Bibles lying around. We never even touch them, right? They have spider webs all over them, right? We don't cherish the Word of God. We don't treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. Listen, we ought to. We recognize the message contained in the Word of God. That hell and heaven hang in the balance, in the message contained in the Word of God. That all sinners that have come into this world are by nature children of wrath. Sinners. And unless God steps in and shows them Jesus Christ and they embrace Him and accept Him as Lord and Savior, they are heading for hell, beloved. They're heading for hell. Think about that. A place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is why we treat the Word of God with dignity from the pulpit or little pulpits in our life informally. Because it contains a message where hell and heaven hang in the balance for people. Think about that. And we recognize that there is hope. It contains the solution, right? Jesus, the perfect God-man. The one who went to the cross and absorbed sinners, the, the, the wrath aimed at sinners on his own self. The unblemished and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have that message in the Word of God. And people who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior can be delivered from hell. But all more importantly, they can be reconciled to their Creator to live out their purpose of glorifying Him, not glorifying themselves on this earth. What a serious message we carry, right? Oh Lord, may He give us mercy to have dignity with regards to the truth. And then look at what he says in verse 7. Young men need examples of appropriate speech. He says, dignified, sound in speech in verse 8, which is beyond reproach. This is healthy speech. This has to do with the manner in which Titus imparts the truth, that his presentation of the truth would be unquestioned, above criticism, not condemnable. It should go without saying, if we don't model that in the pulpit, and as older men, we don't model... Um, handling the Word of God well, even in appropriate speech, then why would young men take the Word of God seriously, right? Why would they treat it seriously? And what is the motivation for all of this? Just in light of time running out here. Why do we want to see young men follow our example of selfless service, integrity, reverence, and appropriate speech? Look at the middle of verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. It's for witness sake, isn't it? To put the gospel on display because if the people out in the world see a horrible example of so-called Christians who don't live out what the Word of God says, then why should they follow themselves? It's a religion without power, some say. If that's what your Christ in action looks like, I don't want to follow your Jesus. You're having the same issues that I have, right? Romans 2.24, Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, meaning the unbelievers, because of you. 
Nothing will discredit the gospel more than our hypocrisy. Listen, we are responsible older men to mentor and train the young men. How do we do it? By relentless instruction and by a compelling example. I want to remind you of that. And that's going to take sacrifice and time, right? But it's worth it. I can tell you. I'm a young man who has been the recipient of so much investment by the grace of God, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for each and every man who has ever done that. So are you spending time with younger men? Let's get down to the, cut to the chase here, right? Are you spending time with younger men? One-on-one? Small groups? So much of it is presence, isn't it? Do you even show up to events? Show up to events where young men are around and you strike up conversations with them through whatever venue you use. Are you investing yourself into young men, positioning yourself to be around young men? How about you who are younger men, single or married? Are you spending time with older men? One-on-one, are you inviting their input into your life? This requires humility, doesn't it? Humility, that you're not where you need to be. And you're not. You're not all that. I am not all that. We're growing. We're a work in progress, right? We need older men in our lives. And it requires teachability too, that when an older man exhorts you on the hard things of life, whether it be in your, of your singleness, of your marriage, of your parenting, of your life, the life of the church, whatever sin issue, that you be teachable and humble and, and say, you know what? Thank you so much for that. I need to pray and think and consider what you said. Thank you so much. Is that you? Listen to me. Most of the mentors that I currently have, whether inside and, or outside of this church, this is a confession. We're not mentors that sought me out first. We have a famine in the land with regards to that. All over, churches all over America, we're losing the next generation of young people because older men and older women have abdicated their primary responsibility in the church to invest into the younger. So all the more reason younger people, if this sinner can go out and ask for help, for various mentors that I have by the grace of God, then so can you. Be a go-getter. Go find yourself some individuals to be around. Somebody to meet with on a regular basis. Take your wife to somebody else's home and learn from their marriage and learn from, from their, their spiritual walk with the Lord. Take somebody, take somebody with you as an older man and go evangelize together. Go share the message of Christ with people. Show them how to parent older people. And you younger people, invite the input of the older into your life. See, it takes both of us making an effort, right? Are we committed to that, beloved? I pray that we are. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the fact that, Lord, you have challenged us today to be um, older men, in particular, who are committed sacrificially to invest ourselves into the younger men of our church, beginning with those in our, in our homes. Help us to not be, Lord, to shy away from relentless instruction with grace, of course, remembering that we too were foolish in our youthfulness ourselves and to some extent or another still are. Help us to be gracious in our ex- exhortation and help us to not be hypocrites, but lead by a compelling example that they would see some of the same things in us that we're calling them to, Lord. Oh, Lord, we need your grace so desperately to be those types of men. I pray that we would be. Father, I pray also for the older women of this church, 
that they would be committed to the same thing. Father, this is the Great Commission as far as the edificational component goes, where your church is being built up, speaking the truth in love to one another, that we would become like Christ. Help us to do that in the context of biblical relationships, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.